0: got some good questions here for you that that have kind of since we've been out I've been wanting to ask you um what was that one pivotal moment that one thing that you can pinpoint that really sort of led you to to reconsider everything and just decide this wasn't it this that your life needed to change
1: well Pinpointing it down to one thing is going to be really difficult because it was a whole conglomeration of things. But what really if if I had to pinpoint one thing, what really set me on the path to change, or the first major seed that I would say that was planted, was meeting Daryl Davis in, in 2016. As um, when Daryl explained to me how racism and how hate affected him as a child, uh, when he was in the Boy Scouts and how as a child, people were throwing rocks at him. And um, when I had met Daryl, we're sitting, well, first of all, I should say Daryl's black. And um, so that that adds to the story um, why they were throwing rocks at him. So he his parents had to explain to him that he was being pelted with rocks because he was the only black child at the Boy Scout parade. So I'm sitting across from him and hearing him talk about this It was it was an interview. He was interviewing me for his film, Accidental Courtesy, and I'm hearing this experience that he had, and I'm thinking I'm a father. I have children. I thought when I was in the movement that I was going to be doing a good thing for my race, for my people, for my country. I considered myself a patriot, and uh, I thought I was doing something good. And here I'm hearing about how this ideology affected this man as a child and what it did to him and it didn't sit right with me and it was about a year later or maybe it was six months later but within the next year of meeting him I had met another filmmaker by the name of uh, Dia Khan and she had a similar story and and she had said that um, this ideology in the movement had made her feel like less than a person as a child and it made her feel unwanted and ugly and and all these these different terrible um horrible emotions and it really affected me in such a way like this ideology if it's doing that to other people we don't we didn't think about those sort of things when you're involved in this type of movement you're thinking about not yourself necessarily, but the people around you your, and, and just your own race or your own people. So you don't take into consideration how that affects other people and what it does to them. And you just put that stuff out of your head. When you're sitting across from somebody, especially like meeting Dia, we had developed a, a friendship over the course of, of uh, filming. And um, now it's very real. You know, It's not this distant person on the other side of the country that's being getting hurt feelings or something like that it's it's very real because it's affecting that person that's sitting right across from you and you can see it you can feel it you can sense it how damaging that was and to me that that was a i didn't leave right then but that was one of those wake up calls that that said to me you need to you need to start looking at looking at this Close, more closely and realize that what you're doing is potentially, if it's damaging these people, those are just a couple of people that I had met personally. What is that doing to people all across the country, all across the globe? How is that affecting them? How is that affecting their emotional and mental well-being and their and their mental health? It it's not good. So those were some of the first uh, major seeds for me that really started me to. Reflect and and think on these things, and I was projecting those changes into the organization at the time. I, I, I want to draw it back a little bit here. I was still in the NSM at that time, and I was appearing on these programs um, as a representative of the NSM. You know, I was thinking I'm going to get the propaganda or the message out or whatever. And on the inside, and it, it, they got me thinking like this is this isn't okay. This is not good. So I'm making changes in the group and at the time, and, and uh, I didn't realize it, but I was de-radicalizing already at that, at that time. It's the opposite of the approach that we use at Beyond Barriers because we want people to disengage. Then we work on de-radicalization. My journey was all backwards in that sense. And we don't recommend that at all because it's just not, it's not the best way to do it. But I was actually de-radicalizing as I was still running the NSM. And I was projecting that out on the group and trying to change little things, but you can't, you, can't change, you can't change an organization like that. So like there's the old saying that goes, you can put a uh, lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. This is what I was trying to do in the NSM. I was trying to put lipstick on a pig um, and turn the Nazi party into a white civil rights organization and in 2016. In my head, that made total sense. After I left, and I I mean, almost immediately after I left and I had that time to process these things, I was beating myself up over it and going, man, Jeff, how stupid could you be to think that you could change a group, the Nazi party into something that was positive and, and, and things like that. It didn't make any sense. But at the time when I was involved in it, that's how I was making sense of it at the time. And, and, um. You know it just doesn't work you can't you, you can put lipstick on a pig sure but it's still a pig and that's that's uh that was that uh but uh, how about you uh, um you were uh, explain uh how when you first started uh having those uh changes
0: i left in 2013 um for me it was a culmination of a lot of things also um I I started to realize that as I was the chief of staff of the NSM, I was getting a whole lot of calls and emails and messages from people that would call each other brother when we'd be at events and stuff. And, you know, when they'd be emailing me and say, hey, they have this Puerto Rican guy that they're friends with on Facebook, you should keep an eye on them. Or that guy that was at our last uh, rally that I was talking with, we spent the, we had the room together at the hotel but I think he's a fed. And it was, you know, the the whole thing was, you know, we have all these perceived enemies when you're in the movement, you know, you, you don't want to have to look over your left shoulder for your perceived enemies, and then your right shoulder for the guy that called you brother a little bit ago. And one of the things that initially drew me into the movement was having an identity and having people that accepted me just because I was white, you know, but that's fake. It's not real. All of that is complete and utter garbage. They're looking at everything you do under a microscope. If you act out of sorts, well, maybe that guy's gay. You know, let let me talk to this person about it. Maybe we'll find out if he's gay. Oh, you know, he's got black friends. So he's obviously in with the black people. So, you know, he can't be a part of this movement because he has friends of color. And it was so ridiculous. And so that really, that, that was the one thing that really started setting me off. And it was like, all right, well, maybe I'll just stay in this alone, you know, and I'll just keep doing my work. And then my daughter was born. And uh, my daughter was my first uh, blood child, okay? My sons I have adopted. Um, they were my wife's from her previous marriage. Um, but my daughter's born, I get a phone call. And it's this guy who's another real well-known person in the NSM. And he's like, Hey, you know, I just got word from the commander. Your daughter's born. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah. She was, she was just born. How big is she? And he asked me all this stuff, you know, just being really nice about it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then finally he gets on and he's like, all right, I got one more thing to ask you. Why are you working with anonymous and why are you a traitor?" And it's like, I've seen it happen all throughout everything. I'm seeing it now happen and being projected onto me when I have done absolutely nothing to betray anybody. I, I'm, I'm just going to isolate for a little while. So about a week passed after that. But during that, it really started to stew. It's like, well, if that was crap, what else was crap? What else was that I fall for and get ingrained in me from childhood until I mean, from, like, age 12 till, you know, till 2013, it was ingrained in me. It was, I was pretty much raised in it, and uh, I started just looking at things and, and looking over th- things, and there was a, a black guy sitting outside of the, the, the hospital, and he's just sitting there smoking a cigarette. He has his, like, IV bag attached to him. He had cancer, and he's just sitting there, and he's like, hey, what, what are you doing here? You know, I see you keep coming outside and then going back in. I tell him I had just had a baby. He stands up. He gives me a hug. He's like, congratulations, man. You know, even if they say, I don't have a long time to live, you know, at least life was born here during this time that I'm here. And I, I got to meet somebody and and it was just a really nice exchange. And then we all go inside and I go up to the, the room where my wife is and the baby. And I'm just sitting there like kind of frozen and off, distant, Because all this crap is like processing. It's like, okay, so I was just treated really nice by a Black person. I kept all people of color out of my life at that point. I did not have a single person of color or a Jewish person or anything as a friend. And this guy was just really nice to me out of the blue for no reason whatsoever. He didn't want anything just really nice to me. Okay, well, what else is crap? And I just started going through everything in my head. And it was like a ladder that was collapsing on itself stage by stage as I kept thinking through things. And it was like, revisionist history was the biggest thing for me. Um, The whole, you know, Jewish people control everything and the Holocaust was fake and all of that. And and that started going through my head. And it's like, when you look at it from a perspective of this could be crap you start to realize they have shoes from the Holocaust, thousands of pairs of shoes, millions of pairs actually. They have the bones, they have pictures, they have names. Revisionist history is just a way to substantiate the false ideology that they want you to believe. And after that, I was just like, I'm done. I just pretty much started life over just cut everybody out of my life and started everything over. I didn't want any part of that anymore. And then all the realizations hit and all of that, like, wow, I was really not a good guy. I always wanted to be the good guy. Nobody wakes up and wants to be the villain in the story, you know. Nobody wakes up and says, you know what, I want to make these people terrified of me. I want to be the worst human being I can possibly be to people. And it's like you go to sleep and then you wake up the next morning and realizing that's exactly what you are. And that, that hit me like a ton of bricks in the chest. And at this point, I'm still sleeping in the hospital with my wife and the baby still in there. And it's like I'm holding this beautiful little baby in my arms and I'm so happy. But at the same time, it's like my life just ended because I can never go back to that because of all the, the introspection and realizations that happened. And that was really everything that led me to, to that point. To, it was all from that one little thing snowballing, that one seed and then that seed sprouting and growing limbs and that, that's everything, you know? And th- that kind of leads me to my next question so I was just like, gonna. It, I was
1: just gonna say before we get onto the next question, because um, I have a question for you too, and and well, I would like to share something as well. But um, so, would you say so? Would, um, it just happened to be that um, it was a, it was one small incident that set this chain of events into into motion, and uh, so that's why a lot of times it's difficult to say, well, it was this, it was this particular thing, because it set that chain into motion and it and reminded me of, um, would that be accurate? I mean, first of all, uh, is that accurate that it was just one thing that set that into motion?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. It was, it, it's, you can never really pinpoint it to one exact thing. It's always a culmination that leads up to that one big event, you know what I mean? It's multiple things that all sort of come together to that singular point. It just kind of makes the explosion and everything just sort of floods you at once. And it, it just really, really was something that I wasn't prepared for. And then like, you know, we have that one mutual friend who left too. I'm talking to him and he's like, I don't think I could ever leave this man. I don't think so. And I'm starting to bring up the points that I've been feeling and stuff. And he's like, dude, if you're going, I have to go too. He's like, after realizing all the stuff that you've just told me, I I can't. And he's like, if you're leaving, I'm leaving too. And I'm still best friends with him too. And it's just like, when you have those realizations, you have these, not necessarily thoughts, but these feelings. It's not even a matter of just thinking about things. It's everything. You feel it so deeply. And it affects you so deeply that, even if someone were to say, I'll give you X amount of dollars to come back into the movement and do this, you couldn't. You couldn't. You would end up absolutely losing yourself completely.
1: 100%. <clears throat> I agree with you 100% on that. And it reminded me, you know, I, I often, when I talk about my story and tell my story, I talk about Daryl and Dia because they are public figures, and and they're okay with me sharing sharing that. But there was other people too, you know. There was others that are not public figures, and and this is one that I can that I can share that had a profound effect on me, and I, and I'm it reminds me of so many other people's stories too because of the work that we do, as you know everybody has their own unique journeys and stories but one other thing that that took place and and uh this is one of many but um it's it's also quite interesting because um you know as you know i live in detroit so this was close to the end of my time in the movement and um i was on a date with this beautiful girl and we're coming back from uh, the amusement park and we're driving through detroit and um excuse me and my car starts smoking and and it's going to break down but we are in the worst this is like midnight or it's late at night anyways after 10 close to midnight and we're in the worst uh area of detroit which is pretty dangerous city um as it is and um we're in the ghetto basically area of the city and uh she's like you need to pull over now or you're gonna your car is gonna be destroyed. And I said, nah, "No, we got to make it, we got to make it home. This is not a good place to stop. And nothing's open. We can't stop here. It's a bad neighborhood. And she says, no, we're going to be fine. And um, we need to stop or your car is going to be destroyed. And we're kind of going back and forth. I'm like, okay, fine. Let's, let's stop. We pull off of the, the exit. Um, the only thing open is a liquor store. Nothing, nothing else is open. We get to the liquor store, pull in, Push all the radiator fluid goes out on the ground and now smoke, smoke is just pouring out of the hood. This car is not going anywhere. And um, she says, you know, I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna ask if there's a mechanic or, or somebody in there. I said, no, but there's not gonna be no mechanic in there. And I, I'm having all these stereotypes and all these, you know, concerns and, oh, my car is gonna get stolen or the rims are gonna get stolen. or All these kind of things are going through my head at the time I was still in the movement and um she goes in and this this girl actually she worked in the music industry and she worked with a lot of black artists and and things like that and um you know she was like you watch i'm gonna get us help and it's gonna be fine and i was like i'm gonna go in with you she goes no you look scary you go in with me nobody's gonna help i'm gonna go in and get help you stay out here jeff you know so i'm i'm listening i'm letting her do her thing she comes out uh, has a guy that's Looking at the car, and he's like, "I'm a mechanic. I can let me take a look. Oh, this is the problem, you know." And he's uh, fixing on it, and and uh, just out of nowhere, you know. And and uh, I'm thinking, you know, there's a crowd of people around the car. Hey, that's a nice car, and and all these kind of things, and the, all the worst things are going through my head. And it was actually this wonderful experience. Now, now they're saying, or he, the mechanic says. The only thing missing is a radiator fluid and nothing is open, you know? So, you know, but you need radiator fluid. So let's, you know, that's all you need and you'll be able to at least get it home, um, but you should get it checked out. And um, there's a guy parked next to us and I don't know if this guy was living out of his car, but you could tell he was very, very poor. There was clothes packed up in the backseat. It looked like he was living out of his car. And um, he says, did I hear somebody say they need radiator fluid? And uh, we said, yes, yes, you know? And he's like, I have a gallon right here in my back seat. And he goes in, grabs the radiator fluid, hands it to me. And I said, here, let me uh, you know, give you some money for that. And he's like, I will not accept any money from you, no. I know I'm not accepting it. You know, so we're arguing a little bit back and forth. Finally, he's like, you know, if it was me broke down on the road, you would have helped me to, I'm sure you would. And, and the wheels in my head are turning and I'm, I'm thinking, I'd like to say that I would, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure that I would, you know, I, I, I would like to say that I would, but I, I don't know, you know, and I was just sitting there thinking for a second, cause I don't want to lie. I don't lie. So I was just thinking, he goes, you know what, even if you wouldn't so i don't know if he knew what i was thinking or what but he goes even if you wouldn't promise me next time you see somebody in need you pay it forward you help them um and i said i can do that 100 yes you know and um we got home and everything was fine and and uh that that was quite an experience for me because i was expecting absolutely every bad thing you could imagine and the exact opposite happened. And the same thing I could be said about working with the Jewish community now, I had all these concerns uh, and all these fears, if you wanna call you know call it that, from before about the Jewish community, they do this, they do that, all these stereotypes and, and these concerns. And almost everything that we believed before um, about those types of things was not accurate. It was a lie, you know, so... It, it, it makes you you go through a whole gamut of emotions, and and you and shame and embarrassment, and and it's like carrying a weight. But once you once you've gotten past that point, I think it's it's so um, it's like a weight being lifted. And I'm sh- I'm sure you you've experienced we've all experienced that those of us that have left, but it's like you've let go of that burden and you're able to experience the world once again. And that's, that's pretty awesome.
0: Absolutely. It's like, once you get past the, the, the pain of everything kind of flooding you, because I mean, when you're in the movement, you think, Oh, flyer campaign, that that's nothing. That's petty stuff. That that's nothing big. It just gets the word out. Nobody's getting hurt. But you don't realize it could end up on a Holocaust survivor's lawn. It could end up on a black person's lawn that has anxiety, or not, even a kid picking it up that's in the black a black area. They pick it up. They see the swastika. They instantly know it, it's something that's anti them. You know, it, it's causing fear. And once you get past all of that and all those little realizations, and you get to the other side. Yeah, it's freeing. It's 100% freeing. And it's almost motivation. Once you're past that point, it's for me, it was motivation. It was like, all right, I have to get to know people. I spent my whole life isolating myself from every other type of human being. I wanna know people from other countries. I wanna know people of every color. I wanna know people of other religions. I wanna know. I don't wanna be that ignorant person that I was that for so freaking long so long in my life I was in that insular bubble like you can relate I know it, it's a bubble and you you don't want to step out of line and have that friend of color that everybody will talk about that you must be a race traitor because you have a friend that's a different color you know it, it's ridiculous now we can sit here and laugh about it But when you're in that movement, it's so isolated, it's so insular, it's very cult-like. It's like you can't have anybody outside of that that's around you. Even down to where if a family member starts dating someone of color, it's just like you, you just disown them. Do not talk to them, don't bother with them. And it is so damaging. It is damaging to every area of life. I, I know for me, a lot of people were like, so what made you just change? no Nobody changes overnight. And it wasn't overnight, it was over a certain period. But it's like, what made me change is not wanting to hurt everybody for the sake of something that I thought was real, but that I realized I was just ignorant and sort of keeping going out of, uh, I, I don't wanna say laziness, but, unwillingness to sort of look at it from other perspectives you know what i mean To oh look yeah at
1: the world. absolutely i mean i i felt the same way like i should have probably left the movement in 2016 2017 for sure but i kept making excuses i kept saying okay well my business is involved or no one is ever gonna accept you as anything else but this Nazi, you know, um, or, you know, like the old saying goes, this is your bed, now you have to lie in it. I kept thinking that over and over and over again, that no one was ever gonna give me a chance to be anybody else but that. And the couple of people I was still talking to that were in the movement, um, that knew I was leaving or that I had left, um, you know, they were saying stuff like that to me as well. I never voiced those concerns to them, but they were saying, well, what are you gonna do? What are you, know, what, are, you know, what are you gonna do with your life? Before I started speaking out, of course, you know, but they're like, this is who you are. This is who the public will always see you as. This is all you can, you can ever be. You don't think the Jews and, and the government and everybody else, they're not gonna give you a chance to be anybody but that person. So by turning your back on the movement, you will have nothing. You'll be completely isolated. You will have no friends, no uh, nothing, no job, no nothing. You will just be on your own and branded a trader. And that's, that's a, that's a big factor for a lot of people. And, and that's something that, um, I, I think a lot of us, you know, had struggled with as far as, is, uh, I'm almost at a loss for words on that one, man. But that's that's a. I think it's a pretty common thing that you think about when you. Well, you you've said it before too. You you do lose the friends that and the, the support network that you had there, although it wasn't the best of support networks necessarily. But um, you do have to. It's like starting over.
0: Yeah, even down to the the media that you 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 ingest. Even down to the media. Most of us listen to like oi music, racist oi music and stuff like that. It's like you lived it. Every bit of media that you were taking in was documentaries on Nazi Germany, documentaries on revisionist history. It was books like uh, Mein Kampf and The International Jew by Henry Ford and things like this. You're digesting all of that. That's gone. All the media that you once listened to is now gone. All your friends that you had for years that brother this, brother that, that were really trying to look and, and dissect you all that time, they're all gone. Um, every piece of your life now is new from the ground up. And it, it, it's very scary to a lot of people. I think that's what took me so long to inevitably leave because I realized it was, everything that I held as true was gone. Every bit of media that I ingested was gonna be gone. Every friend I had was gonna be gone. And would my family accept me as somebody who left it? Would they be able to say, okay, well, he's not that person anymore and just be like, come on in, you know? And they did. Um, It's something that a lot of people I think that are still in the movement that are old timers. It's not that they're lazy or don't want to to change. It's that they realize that it's a lot more work than people realize. And that's why Beyond Barriers is so important in my opinion is because it gives somebody a person that they can turn to. It gives them a group of people that they can turn to. It gives them a, a sounding board. It gives them a safe space to express themselves with other people who have already been there and left. And I mean, when I left, I would have loved for Beyond Barriers to have been around at that point because when I left, it was just me and my my wife and my kids and we were completely isolated. Other than my one friend, we were living up here in Pennsylvania, they were living all the way down in North Carolina, so it wasn't like we could hang out and. So it was like, I was completely isolated, no friends to turn to, just me and my wife. And that was it, starting life from scratch. You
1: no, know, I understand that. Cause I, I, you know, people have asked me about that as well. And there was like, you could count them on one hand of the people that I had, that I had a couple of girlfriends that, that I could turn to. I had my dad and then I had Dia. And that was literally, those were the only people Maybe one other. There was just a couple of people, a few people that knew that I was actually struggling with, you know, I I'm gonna leave the movement and all these sorts of things. So I think it's it's uh, I don't. We don't want to when you are talking about this stuff. We don't want to say it in the sense of that we're trying to discourage anyone because I'm telling you, it is worth it. And this is for the public. I know you know it's worth it. All of us that are out know it's worth it, but it is worth it to change. And we are here for you. That's what Beyond Barriers does. We're here for you. We've walked that path before. We've been there. We understand it. We get it. You are not alone. Um, I call it, uh, for lack of a better word, when I first left, my decompression period because I felt like my brain was was like going you know like a sponge or something and um that's why i say i did the i did it backwards i was deradicalizing before i disengaged and then after i disengaged really i was trying to process all the things that you should be processing before beforehand but um and that was a lot and that was a really really hard time um, especially those first, those first months, those first few months. Oh my gosh. Cause you're just like literally alone with your thoughts and, and regrets and shame and guilt and all those emotions, all those things that in a hyper-masculine movement, like we were involved in that you just didn't talk about. And you, you certainly, you, you didn't say, Oh, I was afraid of this or, Oh, I was concerned about that. I don't even like the word fear, but when we look back on on that time and why were we this way? Why did we act in that manner? The movement is incredibly fear-based. It's it's literally based on fear. That's what it what's the biggest motivating factor for people. And um, I know when I was filming with Dia, sometimes she would point those things out. She would be like, "Well, it sounds like uh, Jeff. What you're talking about is is that." Uh, white people or the white people you're talking about seem like they're afraid of of these other communities and seem like they have this fear of being replaced or genocided or or these different things well we're not afraid of nothing you know i I still i still feel like i'm not afraid of anything i don't have that you know i don't have that fear like regular people but when you break down what the movement stands for and what it really believes what they really believe in what we believed when we were there, it is fear-based. She called it right. She really did. It was, and and I mean, we talk with people that are on the fence or that are struggling with getting out or, or that are still in the movement even now. And they'll tell you, well, I had a guy tell me a couple weeks ago, he says, Jeff, he says, I don't hate anybody. I'm not a racist. He says, I'm talking to you about these different things. He says, but I feel like I can't have children because I'm afraid of white people are going to be genocided or that they're going to be, um, it's not a safe place for my, to raise a family. So I don't want to have kids because I'm afraid of, you know, or I, I fear what could happen to the kids. And I was thinking, man, this is, this is it. This is another, another individual. And, and they probably didn't even realize it at the time, but, um, you know, so that's some of the things that, that we're hearing now. And that, that, I couldn't, I couldn't acknowledge it back then, even like the cult like environment, you had mentioned it as well, and I have in the past as well. I was bringing different girls that I was dating around to movement events over the years, and literally one after another that actually had come to events with me the ones that would come that were not in involved but that would just come to support me. Literally like one after another was like, this is like a cult, Jeff. This is very cult-like. You're the cult leader or things like that. And I get so angry at the time. I was like, stop saying that. It's not a cult. Why are you saying that? What's wrong with you? It's not a cult. And as soon as I got out and was going through that decompression period where I was processing these things, I was like, Oh my gosh, all these girls were right. It was me that was wrong and it was them that were right and they saw they could see it plain as day because they were from the outside looking in and seeing how how it was like coming around the movement for the first time and seeing how the people were and how you know what we call now echo chambers or being able to see beyond those barriers be inside the barriers we were inside the barriers we were inside the bubble or the echo chamber and we couldn't see it but others could, you know, and it's just, it's, it's unbelievable, but that's, that's one of the things you process, you know?
0: That's the thing. When you're inside of a cult, you'll have family members and you'll have everybody on the outside saying, dude, you're, you're in a cult that that's totally a cult. And you're sitting there like, I can substantiate it for weeks because I have all this ideology in my head, you know, and you sit there and you're just substantiating it and going over everything. You never think, damn, I was in a cult until it's after you've left, you know? Whenever you see those shows on like uh, Hulu and Netflix and it's like leaving the cult or something like that, you always see people, we didn't know, we thought we were doing good. We thought we were doing what was right. And it wasn't until after I learned that everything was restrictive, everything was controlled, everything was monitored, that you realize you were in a damn cult. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Isn't that isn't that interesting? And I think that's that's one of the things that that people need to really understand more. That when when a lot of people, I think, in the public, when they look at the movement, they say, um, "Oh, it's all about hate." And there's people out there that say it too. And I know we agree on this, but you know, they'll say, "Oh, I was filled full of hate. I was all about hate." Almost nobody that that we knew. Um, join the movement because they were full of hate. If if you're joining something because you're full of hate or that's what you're you're on, you might be some kind of sociopath or psychopath or have some kind of other psychological issues. Hate is developed there, it's hate is nurtured in the movement, but it is not a motivating factor typically to get involved. I mean I I had met some of those people over the years, I'm sure you have too that were those were those types, but they're very few and far between. The hate is more developed inside of the movement. It is more what, uh, what we've said before too, is that we actually thought we were doing something good. We actually, no one joins, like you had just to echo what you said earlier, no one says, hey, I'm gonna be the bad guy. I wanna be, I wanna be in this villainous movement and do something evil and bad. Nobody does that. If, you, if you're doing that, you've got some kind of other psychological issues that you probably need to get sorted out. But um, when you approach when people from the outside looking in are approaching the movement with that sort of thinking in mind, like this person's filled full of hate and that's all that they're about, you've already missed the the whole point of how they were there and you're not gonna be able to help them to disengage You're not gonna be able to help them de-radicalize when you don't understand um, what the motivating factors were. So to understand that these are human beings that are involved in these groups, they've made mistakes most of them that joined, not all, but most of them that joined joined with the best of intentions. And I know that's a hard thing to stomach for a lot of people, but um I know you and I have from, from our own journeys, and most of the people that even when I was in the movement, most of the people that we knew joined with the best of intentions. And I know that's hard, it's a hard thing to hear, and that's a hard thing for the public to swallow. And and it's a horrible thing to be involved in it's, it's not a it's not not a good uh, uh, life choice by any means but to understand that psychological aspect of it that they are joining thinking that they're doing something noble or something good and to deprogram people from this type of belief system you have to understand that that they're not joining or motivated by hate yes they are hateful yes hate's been nurtured there all that but that's not that's not the motivator. And and if you don't understand that to the, and this is for the public, but if the public doesn't understand that or anybody that's working in confronting violent extremism or prevent, you have to understand that factor or you're not gonna be able to uh, get anywhere with the people.
0: Right, like we used to always say, um, even at the end of phone calls, 1488 the 14 words, David Lane, we must secure the existence of our people in the future for white children. That doesn't say you need to hate other people. That, that, that wasn't the intention of the statement, but it did bring fear because you felt like white people are being eradicated and your children need that safety. But when you're joining the movement, you just think of yourself as sort of this knight, this crusader that, that's trying to protect the white people. You don't think in terms of, of hatred. That's not the initial draw. Hatred sort of springs up in there don't get me wrong it's not a good thing whatsoever and it's all fear-based like you were saying but it's like it it's not fear that that creates the hatred the fear sort of feeds into your your desire to want to do good and it perverts that desire to do good into something completely alien to its initial intentions and that's where the hatred comes from and i mean I was actually talking to a psychiatrist about two years ago about it and she was like well what is the core portion of what you once believed in that you don't believe in now and I was like we must secure the existence of our people in the future for white children and she was like why don't you believe that I was like because white people are not going extinct and my children will do absolutely fine as long as politicians don't have everybody kill each other <laughs> and and she was like, that that's well spoken, but I don't see how that applies to the organization and the, the stuff that you did in the past. And I was like, a lot of people that weren't deep into it don't. They don't understand that. They think that you just joined because you didn't like people of color or that you didn't like Jewish people or something like that. The the, the feeling that they're enemies comes way long into the actual ideology indoctrination. And by the time that that comes along, you're already in the cult. Yep. So what I'd have to say, the the one question I really, really wanna ask is imagine you're talking to young Jeff. He's just thinking about joining the, the white separatist, white supremacist, white national socialist organizations. You now, what could you say to him to try to change his mind, to keep him out of it? Because that's what people need to hear today.
1: Well, and that's a really good question. I think about that a lot of times, you know, when you you think about, well, what could I have done differently? Um, You know, and you can't change the past, but, you know, you can change your your path going forward. But... um, one of the one of the things I think I would do is because of uh, like the area that I was raised in, and I and I don't put this on my family or anything because it had nothing to do with them, but um, as, as far as my own choices that is, but when I was raised in a rural area of Minnesota. And I didn't have a lot of uh, interactions with people of different races or things like that. Um, You know, there was some people uh, from Mexico that would work in the fields in the summertime and things like that. And there was a few different people of different races out there where I grew up, but not very many, like one or two. And uh, the first time I think I'd even remember seeing a black person in, in real life. I was in like third or fourth grade, and I, uh, I was at a wrestling match when different schools were in and participating and things like that. But um, so I didn't have those interactions. So I think what I would have done to prevent it, um, what I would, what I would like to do, or what I would like to see done, um, not just for myself but for all the future generations going forward, is having more experiences with these different with different cultures and things like that. One of the things. Um, since I've been out of the movement is I really didn't know a lot of Jewish people. Like I knew like one Jewish lady here in Detroit um, before I was, you know, before I got out of the movement, I just didn't really know any Jewish people. And um my opinions, especially I was, I was a raging anti-Semite. I mean, I, I don't think that's any shock or surprise to any of the listeners that, that uh, would have known me from before but I wasn't really like a hardcore racist. Um, maybe when I was in the younger years in the movement, yes, but the last few years, it was anti-Semitism especially because that was the most ingrained. And what's so ironic about that um, and, and sad actually is that I had all these opinions and I, I thought that I was this expert on the Jewish people and Learning what I know now and having experiences that I've had now since I've been out of the movement and through wonderful organizations like the Simon Wiesenthal Center, who have been there since literally day one after, our, after I got out, um, and some Jewish friends and, and different people from the Jewish community, most of those things that I believed before were wrong. They were not even accurate. They were incorrect and, and sometimes almost completely the opposite of what the truth really is, or how, how the um, culture and the religion and all that are. So I think if we are going to make these changes as a society, as civil society, we have to go back to the beginning and catch these things, um, not catch them, but nip these things in the bud, so to speak, in school. And um, I remember when I was in high school, we had like an international day, one day. And it was really fun because they had every culture you could imagine or from every group that was in the school, basically, and you'd have, oh, pastries from France. Oh, pretzels from Germany, all the different, you know, uh, tortillas from Mexico and all these different things um, from each culture of people that were in the area or things like that. Um, And it was one day, so you didn't really learn a lot about it. You got to experience it and try different foods and things like that, which was fun. But it was just like one day. It was the International Day or whatever they called it. But if you had something where you were, you could have a class on that. For me, school was was a lot of repetition, and and it got really boring because I felt like we were doing the same thing every year. So you got all this time in school, and you're not learning new stuff because you're rehashing things you learned last year. at least in the public school that I went to, um, there was a lot of that. So why not have a class or why not have part of a class? I I don't know which class it would be. um, And study all these things on different cultures. Like one day it could be, you have a speaker or somebody come in and talk about how things are in Kenya. Next week, there would be somebody that would come in and talk about Spain, um, and, and so on and so forth, and learn about the different cultures, different religions, just so they're not so scary. You know, you say, well, today we're going to cover Buddhism. Next, tomorrow we're going to cover paganism, and then Muslims, then Jews, and and different things like that. So people get to understand that some of these things that they fear or that they they find. Uh, strange or, or whatever it is, you know, that are frightening that really it's not a big deal. It's just a different custom. Like a lot of people now are afraid of, of Muslims, you know, where if they see somebody praying or something like, Oh my gosh, that person's a terrorist or, or they, you've had a couple of incidents where people think that Sikhs, you know, from India, the Sikh uh, people, that they're Muslims. They they don't understand that it's two different. They're not even the same race of people, but like, and with Judaism, all these different things, and and cover each of them. Don't don't disclude anyone, but be in truly inclusive, and cover all these different things. Don't leave anybody out, because the mo- if you leave one group out, then all of a sudden you're isolating somebody, and then you're creating future problems. So cover all these different people, and all the different cultures and things like that. And I think that probably. I would like to say if I would have had that experience or had more experiences with these different people that I probably wouldn't have taken this path. At least I I would hope not. What about you?
0: Exactly. That's pretty much exactly what I was going to say. If I would have actually let more people, I mean, I grew up in Philadelphia. It's very multicultural here, but if I would have actually let more people from other cultures in I wouldn't have tried to say, well, this is America. You need to take our culture and adapt to this. If I would have let them come in and have me experience stuff from their cultures, if I would have had that influx of, you know, I mean, there's Vietnamese, Cambodian, Laotian, um, Black, Latino, um, both in Puerto Rican and Mexican here. There's large Jewish population here. All of that I kept out. Because I just figured w- when I was younger that you know none of that is mine, so I just needed to not have any of that experience. I just needed to to sort of listen to what I'm told, so to speak. And I, I don't like to pass it on on the older generation either. But the older generation was pretty racist <laughs> where I'm from. Um, I can't tell you how many times I heard the N word growing up or anything like that. And it wasn't that they were overtly racist, they didn't treat people based on race, my family, but it was always like, oh, they took advantage of me because they were Jewish, or oh, those darn N-words. And as a kid, you hear this and it's like, well, I don't want that to happen to me, so I'm just gonna kind of keep that out. That's why growing up, I felt like I had no identity because I didn't know what ethnicity I was. And uh, so I sort of pushed all that away because that definitely wasn't mine. You know, I'm not Asian. I'm not black. I'm not any of that. I'm not Jewish. Now I know I am Jewish, but, and I sort of pushed all that away and I had no identity. And that's why it made it so easy for me as a kid when they were like, you know, yeah, we're skinheads and everything. Come hang out with us. You know, You, you fit in with us. You're white. You're all right. Come on. And it was that at that point where it was like this is where I fit in you know I don't fit in with any of these people that are directly around me but these people because I'm white and they're white they say I'm their people so if I would have had those instead of staying so insular if I would have had those cultural experiences I would have never joined in anything remotely restrictive of that
1: Yeah, that's really, that, that's, I think it says a lot, you know, and it's it's really interesting when we look back at these things and, and uh, the stereotypes and, and things too. You know, one thing that's, that's interesting is, and, and why I think it's so important that we start young and start in the schools, you know, and I, I know there's people who say, oh, well, you we don't indoctrinate people. I don't see it as an indoctrination thing. Like the, that international day, was my favorite day of like the whole year in school. Like this would be a fun class because ev- it's it's for everyone. It's and it's interesting. You're learning stuff. It's it to me that that seems like it would be a fun class. That who would oppose that? That would be a really interesting thing to to uh, go and and enjoy and things like that. And and you know because as an adult and being in the movement i'm thinking back on different things and these were going through that that during that decompression period there was people that tried to get through to me my family tried so hard so hard to get through to me like literally they were going to send me to a farm in the middle of iowa at one point to get me away from the movement with with an aunt or another family member and uh, i literally ran away from having to go there and um you know, nothing, nothing could have taken me off that course after I was in and it was so, so dedicated and so fanatical, I guess is probably the, uh, the, the correct word, um, unfortunately, but there was different times like I, you know, living as an adult or young adult living in St. Paul, Minnesota, I had neighbors of all different races and they knew we were skinheads. Like I'm wearing swastika patches on my jacket. Like there was no question about it. That was on all the time, everywhere, basically, you know, except maybe at family occasions or things like that. But, um, I was, you know, a walking billboard for this stuff. And, um, there was a Mexican family in the one building that we lived in. They must've invited me over, uh, for dinner. I don't know how many times and tried to, you know, be nice, like I was never mean to them, but it was always like, uh, um, no, no, I'm busy or something like that. This was during a time where I didn't even have money to eat. Like, I mean, that would have been, and their food always smelled so good, you know? And I just kept, nope, nope, the movement wouldn't approve of that. I'm not gonna go over there for dinner. I'm not gonna break bread with those people. You know, it's like, what the heck was, what got in our heads? What is wrong with us? Like, you know, these were, there was a lot of people that that really tried, you know, that really tried hard to, to get through. And it just, it just didn't take, you know, so that's why I think it's so important. Um, anybody can change, but you have to be ready to change, you have to be willing, and you have to have some of these uh, experiences like Fred and I detailed uh, today um, in this conversation. But um, really, I think if we want to uh, make a lasting change in the country so the future generations don't have to uh, struggle with these things. We need to start in in our schools and start with the young people um, so they understand that there's nothing to be afraid of and that we really are all uh, part of greater humanity, of the greater human race, um, it doesn't matter. Uh, these race-based programs uh, that they have out there that focus on a person's race, I think that personally, I think they're toxic. I think it, it divides people, and it, it makes people distrust one another, and um, I, I don't think it's good. I, we were part of something like that, and I, I just, I feel like, you um, Of course, we all see race and colors and things like that, but we're all really part of the greater humanity. Um, And I know it's probably not the best example, but it's one I like to use sometimes. Um, You see it in the movies like Independence Day or things like that, where the aliens are attacking the earth. The aliens attack the earth and we're trying to wipe out humanity. Do you think it would really matter if the guy next to you was black or asian or gay or a woman or what or what religion they were? No, it doesn't matter because humanity's under assault. Now we've all we're all united. Why can't we think like that? Minus the alien invasion. Why can't we just look at each other like this is, uh, you know, we're all the same people who cares if one's skin color is a little different or they're worshiping uh, a different God or how many arms the God has or, or what gender you are. It doesn't matter. We're all people. And uh, that's, that's what, that's, what's most important.
0: Yeah. It's, it's to divide people by race is the worst thing you could possibly do. To to be insular away from and, and put into a bubble where everybody around you is identical to where they all have the same ideology, that's a cult. When you break it down, that is cult behavior. We're all one people. We all have two arms, two legs. We all have two eyes, two ears. We all want the same things for our families. None of us want our kids to suffer none of us want people we love to suffer we all have these uniting traits that that truly make it to where we are one we are one people doesn't matter what your color is doesn't matter what country you're from doesn't matter your culture your race we all want the same exact things in life and when people realize that and they stop letting themselves be divided by petty politics or by race or by religion or nationality, when they stop letting all of that come between them and the greater humanity, beautiful things will start happening. A lot less suffering will happen in the world. And I'm not gonna say it'll be easy. I'm not gonna say everybody will instantly hold hands and sing Kumbaya, you know, but beautiful things will happen. And over time, you'll you'll be able to see humanity flourish in ways that we can't really comprehend today. And that's because we've all been so divided for so darn long. And I think that in a nutshell is the, the beauty of Beyond Barriers. That's what Beyond Barriers is working to do with people who were at one time the biggest exponents of separation, of, di- of, of, of you know getting rid of all forms of diversity, Um, trying to promote one race one people worrying only about your own Um, my own is everybody every human being and I think that's the beauty of beyond barriers and the work that we're all trying to do here beautifully stated and it's it is the
1: irony of it um and I sometimes I wonder about this or I think about this too but um the fact that, and someone pointed this out because I didn't come up with this on my own, but somebody said, isn't it ironic that uh, someone that was involved in what, you know, you guys were involved in, you guys are now, you know, promoting peace and inclusivity and, you know, pro-humanity and all this sort of thing. Um, Why do you think that is? You know, why do you think you're so passionate about it? And I think it's because, it was a really good question at the time, but I, I thought about that a lot and, um, you know, because it, it, was in, it was really interesting to me because I didn't really have an answer when I first uh, was posed that question. And I think it's because we spent so much time isolating ourselves and, and, and locking ourselves away and it, we did it to ourselves, you know, that's the whole concept of beyond barriers is you're stuck you're behind those barriers. You can't get over them. You can't see beyond them. You know, you you might peer over it, but then you just go back down under, the, you know, into the bubble or into the echo chamber. And um, so I feel like when we, we've come to see these things because we were isolated so long and uh, away from it, that we love deeper now. We feel a lot more those emotions and things that were, um, forbidden basically i mean nobody says that they're forbidden but they're forbidden you know i mean you don't show emotions i can think of a couple incidences over the years where a a guy or a couple different guys it was maybe happened and i can count it on one hand also where a guy in the movement got emotional at something and people panicked like they didn't know what, to, they didn't know what to do. Like, I can't be in the same room as so-and-so over there because they're, they're crying. Like, I don't know what to do. And they would come and get me and they're like, you gotta, you gotta go deal with this. You gotta go handle this. And I'm like, no, what, what am I going to do? You know, like, I don't want to deal with it either. And uh, we were just so, uh, and you, you think back on some of those things and it's just like, because we blocked all those things out, I think we see them a lot clearer now um, and we feel a lot more and um, cause those emotions and those, it's like those feelings were shut off. Like they weren't broken, but they were somehow shut off. And um, that's where I feel like when I met Dia Khan and she really got to me, I could feel her pain. I could feel it. I could see it in her face. I could sense it that hit me so hard. Um, it, it made me feel horrible, just hor- just horrible, because she's such a wonderful person. Like, I, I wouldn't want uh, anyone else to have to feel that way. And knowing that's just, I look at the big picture. So it's like, here's just one person. And I'm thinking about how this movement and this ideology affected her. Multiply that times millions or hundreds of thousands or all people all over the world that have experienced something similar to that that's deep that's hard to stomach that's hard to swallow and as you said you know once you've come to these conclusions and you you see these things there is no going back not just because the movement won't have you back but because you can't like as as a man i feel like when i was there and i know this is pretty common like you're motivated by your honor, your duty, or you feel that that's what it is. You're, you're going to do something good. Now that you know that is not good and you really can see that you have no choice, but, uh, but to leave, but uh, otherwise you're, you're, you're not being true to yourself. You're, you're being dishonest. You're living a lie, so to speak. And, um, I can't do that. I, I, I won't, I refuse to, I, I, don't, I don't care if I'd be penniless for the rest of my life. Um, nothing would get me to go back into into dividing our country and dividing people like that and causing causing that kind of harm. Um, there's, and, and you mentioned it earlier in the conversation too, there's no price tag that one can put on that. There's no, you cannot buy, you cannot buy honor. You cannot buy dignity or loyalty or anything like that. And um, it's just I feel sorry for the people that are still in and that's why it's so important um, why we started beyond barriers is to be that buffer or to be that you know those open hands to to tell people there is another way that we we are here for you we can help and we've been there before so uh, let's get on it let's get on it today if you're if you're out there hearing this message um, and you're thinking about changing your life it can be done and uh, and it's, it's a much better life out there um, than, than what you had. So uh, reach out today and, and uh, we'd love to hear from you.
0: Absolutely. Once the emotion that you, you've kept away for so long, once you feel those emotions for so many people that you, you've hurt, once, you, once all that comes to you and you feel it and it floods you, there is no turning it off and going back. There, there's no way that anything could ever drive you back. It's just too much. It's, you you betray yourself for so long by keeping your emotions hidden and, and acting like a robot that once you feel that, once you see someone smile of any race, any color, whatever, any sexuality, once they smile at you, they shake your hand or give you a hug, that's something you can't turn off. That's something that, you'll just never be able to turn away from. It, it's powerful. And, and the more people that leave, like when I was talking to you not too long ago, I was like every single person that leaves the movement makes me feel something special in my heart because I know they're gonna have the same things that I had happen to me. Even if we had completely different reasons, different groups, whatever, I know they're gonna have that same feeling of, of A cathartic release that same emotion that that just fills you that you've you know kept away for so long and it's just pure bliss it's like nirvana when you realize how interconnected all people are and you just could never go back there's no way you could ever not want that again that's why i'm glad that, that we're doing the work that we're doing today to help people get out you know I just wish there was a Beyond Barriers around when I had left because I was on my own for, people now do not have to be on their own. They don't have to worry about not having friends or people that have their back in this or that don't understand them. We do, Beyond Barriers does. We've all been there, we've all done that. And when we left, we've had a lot of the same experiences. So, you know, if you're thinking about leaving, even if you don't want to leave right now, if you're thinking about leaving, contact Beyond Barriers. Just talk. That's all we're saying is just talk. You don't have to to commit to to leaving right this minute, but just talk. We're there. And
1: that's uh, another good point too. Is is in our approach as well. We're not we're not going to sit there and berate you over. Um, your belief system or what you believe in or anything like that. We understand it. We've been there. We get it. Um, you know, if you come to us, we're not going to sit there and and, and tell you um, you're a bad human being or or anything of that nature. It's just, we, we'll give you different ways of looking at the world and, and different ideas. And we, we can tell you a little bit about um, what helped us and, and different, give you different tools to look at the world in a different way of looking at things. You have to make the decision for yourself. You know, we can't, we're not here to brainwash you or propagandize you or put any ideas in your head or anything like that, but we're here to listen. We're here to talk, talk with you. And we're here to help you with the toolkit to give you other ways of looking at things and other ways of processing things and seeing things. And that's, that's really what it comes down to. We don't hate you. We're not your enemy. We don't uh, we're not here to judge you or anything like that. We are just people that have been on the, that path before. It's led us to a better life that we have now. And you can have a better life too. It, you don't being in the movement. I, I can say from my experience, every single day you wake up and you feel like you're at war with the world literally the world and uh, you don't have to live like that it's not it's not natural it's not it's not a good way to look at life it's you know there's there's so many better things out there in the world and and yes there's problems in the world and there's there's bad things too but um this is this is so much better of a way to look at look at life and look at society and and um it's better for you it's better for your family it's better for your children that's not a life that you wanna raise your children in. And, and I know a lot of the people that are in the movement um, believe that they're doing it for their family, for their future generations, for their kids and, and all that. It, it, it's not a good life for, for your children. It's not, it's not, you. I mean, those of you that are there, like we were, we know what that has done to our families. We've seen it, everybody that's in it knows families that have been torn, absolutely torn apart by it, or some have been completely ostracized from their families where they don't even talk to them. That's not, how is that helping? How is that helping you? How is that helping your family? What good is that doing really? How is that helpful? And is that the life that you want for your children? Those of you that have done prison time for, for the cause, you know, is that the life that you want for your sons and daughters? I don't think so. I, I mean, really think about it. That's, that's what we're talking about here is, is change and changing for the better and seeing things in a more positive life. If you live your life in fear and, and with all these uh, constant concerns about other people, things that are way out of your control uh, in the world, it's not healthy it's not a good way to look at life and it's not going to help you and it's certainly not going to help your family and it's not a path that uh, um i i mean you have to make that decision for yourself we can't do that for you but we can show you how a life without debt is better
0: right a life that is more geared towards progressing in life a life that's more geared towards growth Um, emotional growth, mental growth and all of that. That that's really what it's all about is being able to grow, being able to be free. Because I've never felt free when I was in movement. I always felt like I had to watch everything I didn't say. I always felt like if I said the wrong thing, these people aren't going to like it and they're going to go tell people that I'm this, that, or the other. If I acted a certain way, if I showed emotion, if I laughed too much, if I was too angry or anything like that, it, that's not a way to live. You, nobody wants to go back to that. Nobody wants to go back to watching everything you do and say in life. It's a freedom that I hope everybody seriously, that, that's ever been in the movement. I hope they get that freedom that, that we all feel today that we never had.
1: They can, they can. They just got to make that decision. They just got to take that step, and and uh, there it is. And we're here for y'all, everybody. Um, we're definitely there. Everybody, I want to say on behalf of both myself and the uh, the rest of the staff here at Beyond Barriers, I want to give a heartfelt uh, thank you for choosing to tune in tonight and and to learn. Uh, you know, this is nothing short of amazing. What we do. And we will continue to put out material like this, but we can't do it without you. Check out www.beyondbarriersusa.org.